Greetings. This is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Samantha Elberth. And I'm Sarah Willis. Today on the show, we talk with middle grade novelist Tara Gilboy. Tara Gilboy is the author of Unwritten and its sequel, Rewritten. She holds a Master's of Fine Arts and Creative Writing from the University of British Columbia, where she specialized in writing for children and young adults. She teaches creative writing for San Diego's Community College's Continuing Education Program. She's also worked as a writing mentor through the Penn Writers in Prison Program and served on the editorial board of Prism International. She's the former fiction editor for Straylight Magazine, and her work has appeared in Word Riot, the Beloit Fiction Journal, Cricket, and other publications. Tara lives in San Diego. Hey, Tara. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, so I just read uh, Unwritten and Rewritten back to back. I've been waiting to read them, and this was such a good opportunity to, <laughs> to dive into them, and I loved them. My favorite part was definitely the characters. Your cast of characters are fabulous. And I wanted to know... Did you have any specific sources of inspiration uh, for the individual characters or the, the story overall, uh, fictional or otherwise? I especially liked uh, Sandra. She gave me really major Mother Gothel vibes from Tangled. <laughs> you know, I, I watched that movie recently. Um, well, I shouldn't say recently, but before I started writing, I never really thought that she might, that Mother Gothel might have played an influence. Um, <laughs> but um no, you know, it's interesting because, you know, with this, because I was writing a sequel, I had, you know, these characters, um, you know, already created from the first book. And so it was, it was interesting because it was like, part of my work was already done. Um, but then at the same time, it was also harder because I needed to figure out what, now that they had achieved what they had set out to do in the first book, like where their arc was going to take them now. Um, and so I did a lot of thinking and I had to actually, as I was kind of developing the plot, I had to spend a lot of time focusing on what Cassandra wanted in the second book, because I knew whatever she wanted was really going to be something that Gracie had to react to. Um, and so a lot of her, goals were going to kind of dictate the course of the plot. So I think that's why Cassandra kind of grew and grew so much um, in this book. But I think in this book, more so than the first one, I was really putting a lot of myself into um, into my characters, especially Gertrude Winters. I don't know why, for some reason, it was like everything just kept popping up and I was having a lot of fun. Um, I was having a lot of fun with the character. I do love Gertrude. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're all very flawed. (laughs) Well, I, I love that they're flawed. I think especially uh, sometimes when you're writing more for younger audiences, you have these picture-perfect characters, and I that's not really as much fun. I love that they're so like imperfect. It makes them more three-dimensional. It's funny because um, I was talking with Shen, my son, today, and he, he, sometimes, he sometimes gets really philosophical and, and moral. And he said to me, I was like cooking dinner and he said, dad, are you good or bad? Oh. <laughs> he said, are, you, are you a good person or a bad person? And I, I thought, I actually, the first thing I thought about was rewritten and how all <laughs> these characters have these doubts about themselves and whether they're good or bad. And I, and I, of course I want to say, dude, I'm good. You know, I'm one of the good guys. But I said, well, i Sometimes I'm good and sometimes I'm bad. <laughs> so, 
you help me father my son? (laughs) (laughs) I won't ask what you were doing that made him ask if you were good or bad. Yeah, that's really (laughs) a little dark. (laughs) He shouted from the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you doing this? Stay in the closet. Um, but I think you make a good point because like I think a lot of times you know children's book writers feel like they have to make like these all good characters but like kids can take it they can get really philosophical they can get really moral and I I think it's good to help kids see those those shades of gray you know because it's yeah it's 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 dangerous when people start to pigeonhole people into good or bad you know I especially love that with a with a heroine because I feel like they're even under a stronger pressure to be like picture perfect. And I love having like a a sassy kind of like stubborn, little bit of a temper, like just a, a strong but imperfect heroine. I really admired that. In the first book, I, I was getting a lot of reviewers who were saying things like, oh, shit, Gracie is such a brat and she should have listened to her mom. And they were like, really, man, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, it's for kids, not the parents. So, you know, it's, yeah. Switching over to more of the uh, nuts and bolts, the writing side of it. Um, is there something you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you started getting into the, the publishing path? Uh, any advice you would give your former self? I think I would probably just tell myself to relax and and take your time. Um, I remember when I first started writing, like I wanted it so bad and I was so hard on myself and I would get so depressed with like every rejection and wonder like, you know, is this ever going to happen for me? Um, And the truth is, had I had a book published when, um, when I was first starting out, like, I don't think I would have been ready for it Um, just because of like all of the other demands that it, that it, you know, it places on you. And, and so once I came out, I had already been teaching for a while, um, which really helped me get a lot better at, you know, doing, you know, kind of public appearances. And, and it was just, you know, it was, it was all those things that I don't know being younger, like I was, if I would have, you know, been able to do it or been able to stick to a deadline um, the way I had to in writing the sequel. So I think I would tell myself to just relax and, and not worry so much about it and just enjoy the writing. Cause now I miss it. I miss that. I, I miss being able to just write and workshop with my writing group and writing was just fun. You know, it's different than when you start writing to a deadline. Um, so the, enjoy the, enjoy the small moments, I guess, <laughs> and relax. I like that. Um, when you, when you started writing and you started to write, you know, seriously, uh, did you specifically know you were going to be writing middle grade or, you know, kind of where did you start? I knew when I started writing children's books that I would write middle grade. Um, I kind of started out as a short story writer, um, as Dean can attest, because I wrote my first short stories in his creative writing class. Um, but I, um, I knew, you know, I knew once I switched over, it was, I got into grad school and I was started working on more adult novel stuff. And I was just really just kind of bored with the subject matter. Um, it was so serious. And then I took this writing for children class and I was just having so much fun and I was playing and I was writing like everything. I was writing ghost stories and historical stories and fantasy stories. And it was like, I, I could branch out into all these different genres because I was already pigeonholed into the middle grade, you know, genre. So it was like, as long as I stayed in middle grade, I could write anything I wanted. Um, and I really liked the freedom of that. And I really liked being able to play. Um, and, and I think middle grade is always what I've liked to read. And ever since I was a kid, even as an adult, I've been reading middle grade. And so I suppose I should have known all along that was where I would end up because it's always what I've loved reading. So, 
I don't know if you find this as a um, Tara also teaches creative writing. I don't know if you find this as a teacher, but I guess there, at least for me, there's always been this expectation to teach the literary. You know, uh, for a while it was the Raymond Carver story that was the workshop story, and then it was sort of the Chuck Palahniuk story that was the workshop story, the Kurt Vonnegut story. But there was a literary version of what you were supposed to do, and I always. I don't, I don't want to say struggled with that, but I always thought about that because one of the motivations for me as a creative writing teacher was the, you know, the, how much I despised getting into those classes as an undergraduate and having my teacher say, there will be no short stories about dragons and swords. There will be no young adult stories in this class. I don't want to read a story with a spaceship in it, you know, and, um, when I think about it as a teacher, I think these kids don't want to be, or these adults who are taking this class, don't want to be the next Toni Morrison. Most of them want to write what they grew up loving, right? And so I don't know if you think about that at all as a teacher, um, but it sounds like you came very early to a decision about how you were going to approach it as a writer, right? Yeah, um, I, and I completely agree. It's always kind of mystifying to me too um, why teachers teach that way. And and I've been really fortunate because I've been teaching um, for the past couple of years a class on writing for children. So I get to pick a lot of children's books. And, and so there's not really like a canon, you know, that you go to that you have to teach. Um, but, you know, it, it, what surprises me about it too is because, you know, as, as teachers, our job is, is to get people ready for careers and, and for jobs. And, and, you know, that is, if you're going to be a writer, um, that is a way to make money. You can make money writing in the genres. You can make money writing fantasy. You can make money writing young adult. So why are we telling, you know, our students that these are not literary enough? Like we're supposed to be, you know, training them to work in their, in their field. And so, yeah, it kind of mystifies and mystifies me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to take on over, Sam, you got some questions. Yeah. So Cassandra was one of my, my favorite characters in the first book. And then I really liked her in this book too, but I, I was expecting her to stay my favorite character, I guess. And then Gertrude, I'm just saying, <laughs> like <laughs> I, she, I feel like she really pulled through for me. Like she was so quirky. I loved her writing garden books. That was just so funny to me. And like going after the beast in the end with pepper spray, I was like, this old lady is crazy <laughs> and she's ready she's to really fight going for it. <laughs> she was. Um, but I also like, I feel bad for her because in my opinion, I feel like she's done nothing wrong in her life. Like all she's ever done is try. She's made a lot of mistakes with her family and her personal life and things, but all she ever did outside of that was try to pursue her passions and find like an outlet for that. And and she has to pay for everything that is going on. Like everyone hates her and I don't know, she's, she's just going through it. <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted to know because it seems like we're going to get another book maybe, but I wanted to know if, if Gertrude ever is going to get kind of like a redemption or, or just like, if you could kind of go into Gertrude's life and. Oh yeah. No, I would love to go into this because um, Gertrude is just a character that I've like really kind of wrestled with because they've put so much into her. Um, You know, like her gardening books. And my grandma was like really obsessed with like gardening books for a while. She was always reading about like cactus. Um, and 
you know, so that kind of played into it. But at the same time, it was like, I was also trying to think like, what would I hate to write about? And I'm like, I would hate to write gardening books. And like, so I'm like, you know, part of that is just me like, kind of like laughing at myself when I get depressed and I don't know what to write and everything's all like, oh no, I'm going to fail and, you know, write gardening books. <laughs> and so there was a little bit of, you know, hyperbole in there and making fun of myself. Um, I think when I started doing that, but no, I agree with you. I feel like Gertrude has just been so misunderstood by the other characters for something that she can't control. And I actually had written quite a few scenes um, in rewritten that I, I cut um, as I was revising, um, but that had her daughter actually come to visit. And so there was, there were a lot of scenes with Gertrude's daughter, but um, no, but I, I had, you know, I had planned to kind of untangle some of that and then it just wasn't working in the plot, but I do, I, I would love to write a third book. I had gotten really stuck on it um, for a while. I had started one, um, and I got really stuck because I didn't know what Gracie needed next and where she needed to go. Um, and lately, it's kind of just been coming to me bit by bit as I'm just kind of working on other things. I'll start to get ideas. So I really would like to write a third one. I know a lot of it will depend on um, if my publisher okays it because I know they're kind of they kind of wait to see how the second book um, does before um, before making that decision. Um, but I definitely would like to, and I know that if I do, it's going to be that it really wrestles with that struggle that Gertrude had with her family. Um, and the third book. If, if I end up writing it will take place on, um, in a romance story, a love story. Um, and I think that is like a good kind of place to really dig into all those really deep family feelings and, you know, drama, I mean, what a better place to do that um, than a love story. So, And you just probably lost all of your fans who are, who prize writing gardens. <laughs> oh, I am sorry. Books. I respect the gardening books. I just planted a garden. Already half my plants are dead. It's not my thing. I'm not good at it. <laughs> but I respect Terrence Gilboy, is she that middle grade writer who hates gardening books? <laughs> oh, Twitter is going to attack me. On aren't the they? side, merchandising <laughs> opportunity. Sam wants shirts that says Gertrude did nothing wrong. I do. I really do. I like that. I like that. We'll have to make one up. If you make one up, I'll advertise on my website and all. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So one of my favorite quotes in this book is, I think Gracie says it, or maybe Gertrude says it, but then Gracie says it later. When she says, for writing to come to life, you have to put yourself in it. And I really like just how they... um, Gracie and Gertrude kind of like struggled with that and just, I don't know. Um, but I was wondering how, how does this apply to your own book and how you wrote this? And also, do you think that statement is true? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because like, I never necessarily know when I'm writing, if I'm putting pieces of myself into it. Cause usually, you know, I'm trying to kind of analyze on a very kind of like logical intellectual level, like what needs to happen in the story. Um, but I have found that like when I do that, sometimes the story falls flat if I don't give it enough freeway so that it's still fluid. Um, and anytime that I try to outline too much, it's, it just kind of feels like fake and and forced. And so when I let, when I just kind of let the characters do their thing and, and only keep very loosely to an outline, um, I think that's when things work better. And I also find that that's when I'm putting more of myself into the story. And, and even if it's not necessarily myself, it's just, you know, people I've seen or people that I've interacted with experiences that I've had. I think it's, it's kind of impossible not to, um, not to do that. I think every writer puts, you know, pieces of themselves in it. And if they're not, sometimes that's, that's when you get, you know, some of those 
bad fiction, especially in children's books. That's when you get all those stories that set out to say, I'm going to teach kids a lesson about this, you know? And then that's when, that's when you lose your readers. Yeah. Well, hopefully you didn't put too much of yourself in it because then it will like become real. (laughs) Then I'm going to get a knock at my door and and I've been really mean to my characters, especially poor Gertrude because I kill her. I kill her in every draft and then I bring her back and it's poor Gertrude. So one thing I really liked about Rewritten after reading the first book and talking to you the first time with our interview for Unwritten was I noticed that themes came back. So like the choice versus free will theme kind of came back. And also like with Gertrude, her intentions behind her art kind of thing. But one theme that I really liked in this book was the mother daughter relationship theme and so Cassandra and Gracie have a really twisted relationship in this book it I think it goes even like deeper than it did in the first one and then Mina and her mom had this crazy like dark fairy tale relationship that I loved by the way like when Mina turned into a beast I was like yeah Um, so why did you want to explore these relationships? And I guess because in fiction, I feel like a lot of times mother and daughter relationships are so pure and they're like loving and, and in this book, you really focus on the complex of it. So I guess, why did you want to explore that? You know, it's interesting. I don't, you know, in some ways I explored it intentionally and some ways it was unintentionally. Um, you know, I was talking with my writing group, it's probably about a year ago, we were having this conversation because we all kept workshopping stories. And we're like, all of our stories are about these mother-daughter relationships. And we're like, what is wrong with us? Like, clearly we have some other issues to work out because uh, we're all writing about it. But, you know, I think, you know, especially as a woman, like, I think it is the mother-daughter relationship is really probably one of the more most complicated relationships that we have because there's kind of this push pull you know you look for to your mother for this you know to be this nurturing person but at the same time you're always trying to break away and be your own independent person um and so it's really just it's complicated um and I, I think that's some of the subconscious reasons um consciously at the time I, you know I was trying to make things really tough on Gracie um and as I was writing this, this was when my daughter was like a junior and senior in high school. So she's getting ready to make that like, you know, transition away, go away to college. Um, and so as I was kind of plotting about what to do in this book, I was thinking, what are the things that my daughter like hates the most? Like what bugs her? And I was like, privacy, like she really needs her privacy. So I was like, what if I made somebody who was able to look right inside your head and know everything you were thinking all the time? And I'm like, that would be one of the most horrible things that I could do to my character. Um, and so that was like kind of some of the things. And then also with, with Cassandra, I mean, there were just times where I was just kind of giggling, like laughing, where I like had to call somebody and be like, guess what I just made Cassandra say? Because I was just trying to think of like the meanest, nastiest things. I don't know why I get such a kick out of that. Like it probably says something about me as a person, but it is fun to do it in my, my fiction. Oh, it's fun to read. <laughs> so. But Cassandra, like... When Cassandra rode up in the limo, I was like, she's yeah. back. I have and so she's many like questions. so cool. Like I know how this happened. <laughs> also the guards, like I need a fashion book <laughs> from the guards and like their Hawaiian shirt and cowboy boots and everything like that. <laughs> I know I was trying to have them like go pick things out of like all these different books and then like wear them like as an outfit. (laughs) I also really like I think Cassandra says it to Gracie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Um, when Gracie says something and she's like, I can't love you because you're bad. And Cassandra says, I love you even though you're bad. Like, so who has stronger love? And I was like, I felt that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, a lot of those turns are really well done. That was a mic right? drop. Yeah. That was one of those things yeah. that was not planned at all. Like I was just writing and it just that as soon as Cassandra said that, I was like, whoa, I was like, this is, I think this is really what this book is about. Cassandra just said something smart and she's the villain. You know what I mean? I was like, so I liked that I got to be able to give the villain, you know, to have maybe a little bit of a better perspective on that than, than things. But yeah, that, that scene surprised me as I was, as I was writing it too. Yeah, that's something that I focused on very early on in the book on like page six. Audrey says to Gertrude that writing fiction is too dangerous, right? And in the book, it's obvious why it's too dangerous because what Gertrude writes comes true, right? And Gracie's the sort of villain and so on and so forth. So, but I started to think about it metaphorically um, because that's what I do. And uh, ultimately, I started to think about the ways in which this book deals with not just the villain, but some really dark stuff. There's kinds of conversations that take place between Cassandra, the middle ground of these characters. And I know that we spoke about this last time, and I don't know how much kind of uh, book reviews dealt with it, but I do know that you know one of the big questions surrounding young adult middle grade books is just what they can handle, right? And so, I don't know, as a writer, how much do you think about whether what you're writing is quote-unquote too dangerous or is it never too dangerous? Do you have a list of words you don't want to use? You know, how do you kind of parse that? You know, it's, it's, it can be tricky, it, and especially for me, because when I'm writing, I'm not necessarily thinking that I'm writing for kids, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm my character, my protagonist is a certain age and I'm trying to really inhabit her and, and the way that she interacts with the world um, and be true to that. And so I'm not necessarily thinking always about the readers and what they can handle, but at some point it becomes necessary to do that, you know, be, because I obviously I can't put anything that I want um, into my books. I, I think a big part of it comes because I read a lot of middle grades. So I have developed a little bit of an intuitive sense for it, you know, just because I read a lot of, of other books um, in the genre. But um, also, I mean, I do kind of have this running list in my head of things that I can't do. And nobody's really given me necessarily all of these rules. Some of them they have, but some I've kind of created on my own. Um, you know, I don't I don't use language. I think maybe I've said like hell or damn in a book, but that's it. I mean, I wouldn't go further than that in middle grade. You know, I know that they have real big rules about like romance. You know, it's like, okay, maybe a kiss on the cheek or you're holding hands or, you know, really innocent. I've chosen really not to put any in mind at all. But just, you know, things. the, the thing that I struggle most with, and especially because I write fantasy, is because, you know, I've, I've built and I've introduced some of that dark material, like you've said. And so when it comes time to get to that climax, it's like, I need to be really careful about how I handle it. And I can't get too, I don't want to get too, you know, violent or graphic. Um, and especially this book, because they want to do a horror novel. Um, I really wanted to kind of watch what I was doing. And, and I also didn't want to keep all the action off the page, right? Because you, you need to keep it on the page front and center for your reader. So that's why I kind of have gone to these things that were a little less violent. That's why you'll see like fire in my book or like the poison. You're not seeing like, you know, like gory, bloody things. Um, because I do try to, I do try to step back from that. So I try, yeah, I try to just keep it more of like a spooky or creepy without being like violent or gory, I guess is kind of my, my line. You know, I think that the things are changing a little bit too. I was talking to an editor recently who had mentioned, um, 
you know, because YA is changing a little bit um, and you're getting so many adult readers reading it and then YA seems to be aging up to that audience that now some of those YA readers are coming back to middle grade, some of the younger YA readers. So now you're also seeing this genre of middle grade emerge that's more of an upper middle grade. So you're getting a little bit more like, um, you know, dating. There's a book I'm reading right now um, called Paris on Repeat um, that co- it comes out in a couple of weeks that's, um, you know, it's got this romance to it and it's it's middle grade. The character is like 13, but it, it has a little bit of a YA feel in a way. So I think it changes, you know, what you can do, but those are just kind of my kind of my guidelines for it. So at the, I'm thinking like at, as a writer, at the sentence level, because I know from your early stuff, your short stories and stuff like that, the first book, and even this one, I there was a point at which I was kind of gushing a little bit in talking to Sarah back and forth. And I said something like, you know, just just Tara's descriptive detail, like how an expression looks pinched, you know, things like that. Do you find yourself wanting to describe things that you can't? Like, do you think about this? It would be really great to be able to, you know, get this sentence in there and you know that you're unable to do that. Do you encounter that at all? I actually don't. Um, and and I think it's just if, if I was writing for adults, I think I would probably write the same way that I do now. Um, just because that's, that's something that I kind of struggled with. Like, I remember in grad school when I was writing, um, I'd get a lot of feedback in workshops, like you'd like describe this thing for like so long, you know, and, and I was always like trying to use like these big words and stuff. And, and I think there was kind of a moment like in my development as a writer where I kind of sat back and I was like, am I writing this because it serves the story? Or am I writing this because I'm trying to show off? And I had to take a look now and, and look at it and say, no, I think I'm trying to show off. And so I was, um, I read, a, I think it's Stephen King's book on writing as I love. And, and he always talks about, um, you know, revising is I think you cut a third or, or something. He has a rule for it. Um, and so I think my rule is always kind of now is to find, can I find that one word that creates the image where like, I mean, I could do it in a sentence. It's harder to do it in one word. Um, yeah. And so I really try to challenge myself to do it as concisely as I can and, and use those really strong nouns and really strong verbs um, because I think that in the end it'll be much more effective. And especially for kids, like you said, because they don't have the the patience to read, you know, Dickens, you know, um, where he goes on and on with those big descriptions. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's challenged me, but I think in a good way where I, I like the way I write better now than I did when I was able to write, you know, those longer descriptions. On kind of a similar note, you have characters, we did touch on this earlier a little bit, that worry about being villains, being the villain. You know, most of the beginning of the novel has, and throughout the novel, we have Gracie really worried about the fact that she's supposed to be a villain and, you know, breaks free of that in some ways. But I think the foil that is Cassandra and the other characters in the book, the way they sort of look at themselves as being not good necessarily, not necessarily bad, labeled in that way, I think in some ways it speaks to how we read. And I wonder if you were maybe thinking about your readers and and how you know, your writing affects them in terms of judging characters, you know, after rewritten, do you want them to walk away saying, well, that character was more complicated than just the bad guy, right? So you're in some ways teaching them how to read. And then maybe some of that carries over there into, into their life, right? I mean, so they start to think about people and say, well, I don't like him, but he's not necessarily the bad guy. 
you know, the archetypal bad guy per se. Are those things that you're kind of thinking about or? Definitely. I think especially it's something that really kind of distresses me right now, just with the way that the world is, is is when I watch the news or I see what's happening on social media is that everybody is trying to pigeonhole each other into these categories of good or bad. And if you, you don't agree with me, you're bad. And, you know, nobody's having conversations. Everybody's just angry and, and, you know, kind of labeling people and, and nobody's trying to see things from each other's points of view. Um, and, and I just think that's really a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. And, and I don't necessarily think that it's going to get solved by, um, by, you know, reading articles on it. I don't think it's going to get solved in these kind of social media conversations. And so when I think about it and I think about the things that are happening, like, I'm like, fiction can do this. Like, and especially I know, like, there's a whole debate right now, you know, everybody's, you know, with the, all the protests and Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, nobody is going to solve this by having these kinds of, of angry conversations. I'm like, I want to give everybody a copy of Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Like, let's all read it. Like, you know, and it's, it's, I think if we can, if we can, or Toni Morrison, you know, um, let's read jazz. Um, I think that fiction can, can speak to people and make people look at things in, in more ways that maybe you can't when you're actually talking about the specific issue. Um, Cause it, it lets us develop empathy and get into that point of view. And so I, I know I've kind of rambled on and on, but I, that was something that was really important to me when I was writing is that I really want kids to be able to look at that and say, okay, people can be good and bad because, you know, nobody's perfect. And in the end, it helps them too, because, you know, then they're not going to judge themselves as harshly when they do something wrong, you know, and then get into that whole kind of shame spiral, you know, and, and think they're bad if they make a mistake. I just think, you know, as, as I get older and older and older, on the one hand, I'm sort of astonished and I admire a lot of these young Gen Zers or whatever Gen we're on for being so confident and so sure of themselves in the right choice. But at the same time, that assurity can sometimes translate into everyone else doesn't understand this. There's this clear right and wrong here. And it becomes this sort of unwavering point of view. And it doesn't matter what it's about. On the one hand, I feel out of touch because I'm like, when I was that age, I was really confused about everything. Not only what the big questions about why I'm here and God and all, like I wanted, I, I was confused about whether I was going to have a ham sandwich or a peanut butter and jelly. You know what I mean? And people today about these big moral questions seem to be really confident on the position that they're on. And I find myself when I do comment on social media stuff, not trying to fan the flames, but say, did you ever think about, you know, and then I'm kind of shot down and I feel like an old man who's an old hippie who's just wants to take a surfboard and go home, you know, kind of thing. But I think that's one of the things I admire about this book is that it really asks younger people to question whether they can be sure about themselves, you know, when it comes to who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And if you're putting yourselves in Gracie's shoes, which to some degree you're supposed to, right? You have to have those questions, not only about the bad guys in your life, but about yourself. And I think there, there are like so many studies too that just show that kids who read, you know, have more, much more empathy and they're, they're just, they develop that skill through reading. Um, so I suppose in some ways we're kind of preaching to the choir with our books too, because kids that are going to read the book are kids that are probably working to build that empathy. But hopefully, hopefully we can reach, you know, we can reach a wider audience. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pausing there because, and I don't want to defend anything or sort of get in trouble or anything, but J.K. Rowling has a whole fan base worth of um, readers and avid readers who 
are very, very angry with her and very sure about their position with regard to trans people and let her know very loudly. You know what I mean? So when it comes to the thoughtful nature of things, you know, she's sort of in the wrong, but at the same time, I think that's the way we've learned to talk to one another. I don't know. I think there's always a danger when it's a, a person just behind an avatar on a screen. You know what I mean? That's it, the danger. We're not communicating in person. I mean, yeah. I mean, even it's nice even communicating via Zoom. At least you can see like the other person's face, you know, and you can yeah. see their reactions, you know, if you're, and I don't mean this specific to JK Rowling or anything, but like, you know, if you're saying something mean to somebody on social media, like you don't have to deal with the hurt look on their face and those feelings of guilt or, or anything. It's just, you get to say it and then go away and forget about well, the it. The conversations we're having online are just not like face-to-face conversations anymore. I feel like there's too much grandstanding. There's too much campaigning for your point and not enough you're not making those connections anymore. I feel like those conversations go down a lot differently if you were standing in front of someone. Most of the time, not 100% of the time, most of the time. Yeah, I think so too. Which is reassuring, I suppose, in its own way. At least we still have the capacity to to be nice to each other when we meet in person. It's nice that reading, and especially reading a book like this, ironically, you're kind of all by yourself. Like you are behind a screen, but you're hopefully learning that, you know, the people that are supposedly the bad guys are people too. You know, yeah. I think there's this real power too in recognizing yourself in a book. I think it was in, on writing again. Stephen King, he says, you know, that's like a magic or what do you call it? Telepathy or something. You know, I'm communicating with you because you're reading this, you know, 10 years in the future. And yeah, there's just that magic where you have that connection. You're like, wow, I didn't know anybody ever felt like that before. I feel like that all the time. And now this writer just described exactly how I felt. And, and that's a good reason to put yourself into your books too, and be honest, because it'll your readers will have that connection yeah we talked to ken Liu too um who wrote uh the paper menagerie and has a new collection out um the hidden girl sarah and i just read and he talked about writing in a similar way and i and i sort of remember him in our interview saying now this isn't you know stephen king calls it magic and telepathy but it really is you know is what he was saying like that's just not a metaphor this it's miraculous what goes on in the written word, you're actually talking to someone over a span of years and they are in your mind. They are getting what you're thinking. And it's, yeah, it's, it's magic. Gives me chills actually to hear you say that. It really does. I mean, you know, thinking back to like, you know, some of my favorite writers um, who are long gone, you know, been dead for a couple hundred years and, and their words still impact me. Yeah. And that's one of the things that when he was talking, he said, it's one of the things that uh, doesn't go away with technology. A written word, it doesn't matter whether it's on a Kindle or on a sheet of paper or on a scroll or whatever, you know, it has that same power. And I thought, wow, that's smart and true. It is. Um, so back to uh, rewritten, both of these works at their core deal with the relationship between fiction and reality, right? In both books, we have characters that are characters and know that they're characters and make it to the real world. Um, in one way or another. Can you talk about the relationship between uh, fiction and reality in your work? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, You know, it's weird because it's like, and I think I put even a quote in the book because I was kind of playing with this idea as I was writing where they're kind of questioning, you know, um, does life imitate art or does art imitate life? And like what, you know, what comes first? Um, 
And so I do find myself, like I said, you know, putting parts of myself into the book. But then it's so funny because I don't know if I'm just watching for it. But then, you know, if I'm just going about my day to day life, something will happen that reminds me of something that happened in the book. And I'm like, that's so weird. Like, you know, um, so there are those little kind of like synchronicities that happen. And, and even in unwritten for probably the first year of that book, as I was working on it, Cassandra had this name who she was just called the watcher, right? And she was like this person who was watching. And I was working on this in a workshop and my teacher found a news article that was about this person called the watcher who was sending these letters to people in their home. That was like, I know everything I know about, about you and the watcher. It's a very scary story. <laughs> you know? BuzzFeed Unsolved an episode on it. It's really creepy. <laughs> Super creepy. I know what you're talking yeah. about. My teacher sent me a link to it. She's like, your story came to life. No. I'm, like, oh my gosh. I'm like, but that's what the book is. That's what my book is about coming to life. And now it came to, no, I mean, I'm sure it didn't really come to life, but it does. I mean, it, it's interesting how those little coincidences happen. It's kind of spooky. I also thought a little bit about the characters and how they reflect on their stories and how, the way those stories define them right in the book. And for your characters who are characters and know their characters, it's, literally true. Their lives are scripted, although they figure out ways to change their stories, It's especially at the end of Unwritten. And so I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit about the idea of agency in your books and the way that you see that intersecting with reading as a reader, you know, um, what we learn about agency. Ooh, um, that's a very good question. When I first started writing the series, I knew that I wanted, you know, her to be from a story whose life had been scripted, but I hadn't thought out all of the implications of that and how hard it was going to be to then tackle that theme. And it's good that I hadn't thought it through because had I thought it through, it probably would have scared me off from reading the book, right? So now I've gotten to almost like the end of the draft and I realized like this is what this book is about. It's about agency. It's about free will. And it was like this huge topic. And I really, really wrestled with how to handle that because it, it was, it was huge. It's like how much of her life then and, and how much you know, if that's who she is, because somebody wrote that about her, does that mean that if she makes choices based on who she is as a person that she doesn't actually have free will? And then I realized that's kind of like what's echoed in a lot of like theology, like now I'm really dealing with some big issues. And so it was just it was tough. Um, it was tough to kind of get my brain around it. But then the more I started playing with it, very reluctantly, I might add, as I was revising, like I was really just kind of you know, I was struggling with in the first book, I should say. Um, but then, you know, by the time I got to the end of that book, it, it just really became fascinating to me. And then after that, and especially as I was writing um, the sequel, I, I was glad that I had taken on that topic. Um, and it was just something that I thought about, you know, a lot and really wrestled with. But I, I was glad that I did. As far as reading, you know, I think, I think a lot of times people really struggle with feeling like they don't have agency in their own lives. And I think that a lot of times that is, and people feel like they don't have agency because of the stories that they tell themselves about themselves and about their circumstances. And yes, it can be, you know, very hard. And a lot of people are put in really difficult situations. But I think sometimes when we're reading, and especially children's books, if you can see a character struggle with an issue that's maybe not exactly the issue that you're struggling with, but, you know, close enough or experiencing those same emotions, and you can see another character, like, get out of that situation and, and overcome, 
I think it kind of slightly changes something in your mind about the stories that you tell yourself. There's a really good book that's become one of my favorite uh, middle grade novels of all time. And it's Anne Braden. Um, and it's the, I think it's the art of being an octopus or it's something, something being an octopus Anne Braden. It's amazing. It deals with, um, you know, the gun debate. It deals with this girl who's from this very poor family and her mom is married or not married, but she's in a relationship with this man who's, you know, very emotionally abusive to the mom. And the girl is seeing this and it's all handled in a way that's very safe for middle grade. But when I read that book, I'm like, wow, any kid that finds themselves in a situation like this, which a lot of kids have probably seen been in this situation, like they're going to look at their life so much differently. You know what I mean? Just feeling like I'm not alone. This is not something I have to be ashamed of. You know, it's just, I think, I think that there's something really, really powerful that stories have to give us that ability, you know, at least about the way that we feel about our lives and and the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Really early on for me, it was Huckleberry Finn, you know, that same, you know, here's a kid and I got in trouble for when I taught it early on in my career, I had said he's, Huck Finn is the stigma of Huck Finn is he is the kid that grows up in the trailer park today. You know, whether they're, whether they're trailer trash, quote unquote, or not, that's what he has to deal with. Not only in terms of having a lot of the stereotypes that are associated with that, i.e. an alcoholic father, right? Growing up uh, with nothing, but the world views him as trash, and so they're telling his story for him. And one of my students said, I grew up in a trailer park. I can't believe you would say that about people. And I'm like, I'm not judging people, but the world judges people. And so that book for me, especially since it deals with it in a way that's humorous, um, I think does a lot of the same things that your book does, which is people can relate to these characters and they can say, oh, well, if Gracie is not bound, restricted by her story, maybe... Maybe I don't have to be either. Maybe I, right? yeah, maybe I can break free too. Yeah. I like that you brought that up about humor. And I don't think that like, you know, my book doesn't have a lot of humor and this one doesn't, but um, it, it's, it's interesting how humor does have that ability to like poke out those stereotypes. And like, I think sometimes I'll get mad, but it's like, I'm not making fun of the person. Like I'm making fun of the stereotype, right? It's kind of like that whole, like Michael Scott's character in the office. Like, he says and does some terrible things, but you know nobody's promoting those things. They're making fun of the person who would be stupid enough to say and do those things, right? Um, so, yeah. Well, in, in your book, we were talking about Cassandra and her sort of comeback with, look, I love you for all of your faults. One of the beauties of Rewritten is the very real conversations that take place between the characters that we can imagine those kinds of conversations. And it may not be laugh out loud funny, but as Sam, you know, was saying, it's sort of like, damn, she actually (laughs) said that, you know? And I think that really helps us to, you know, experience with those characters. Oh, well, thank you. No, good. I'm glad you had that reaction because I did too. I had the same one as I was writing. I was like, damn, she actually said that, which just goes <laughs> yeah. to show how much is out of my control. Like when I'm writing, like you can't yeah. plan these things, right? Characters surprise you um, yeah. sometimes. When you're in it, right? That that whole part of that whole myth of the writer, you know, where they're interviewed and they say, oh, my characters just spoke. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that, even though I wrote it out. There are moments where it's like, Yep, that's exactly what 
she would say, yeah. and she just said it. You know? uh, although to make it a little less glamorous, I'll say when I wrote that scene and the characters were speaking to me, I was probably in my bed in like sweaty pajamas with like Cheeto crumbs on me. So like, you know, it's not, it's not glamorous, you know, it's, it's yeah. we're all very messy and, and slobby yeah. and we go into our writing caves and so, yeah. yeah. The last question we always ask, and we asked you this last time, and it may change this time. Do you have any advice for beginning writers, whether it's middle grade, breaking into that uh, market, or writing in general? You know, I think um, I think the biggest advice that that I like to tell um, beginning writers, and probably nobody is, I, well, I don't know, I don't know how how much people listen. I probably wouldn't have listened to it when I was when I was starting out either. But um, one of my teachers had had told me when I was in grad school, she was like, I have seen so many talented people come through this program. And in the end, it is not the most talented ones that make it. It is the ones that work the hardest and they revise the most. And I always just like kind of kept that with me. And I was like, okay, I can control that. You know, like I can't control if people buy my book and I can't make people like what I'm writing, but like I can control how hard I work. Um, and I can control that I'm always ready to revise or cut or, or do what, what I need to um, to make the story the best it can be. So I think that, you know, that that's really important is to not be too hard on yourself to just be ready to work hard and write crappy, rough drafts. That is the only way I can get to the end of a novel is because I give myself permission to write the crappiest thing that ever there was. And then I know I can revise it later. And, and that's probably I'm kind of in a little writing rut right now. And it's because I'm putting too much pressure on myself. I need to give myself that permission again, and take my own advice. But it, I think it's true. Um, just write crappy and then work hard to revise it. So. All right. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. The pub is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studios at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office. You can listen in on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, where we post new episodes every Monday. You can also find us at straylightmag.com, where we publish news stories, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at The Pub Podcast on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. <laughs>